Welcome to Surveillance Reports 38, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news. This report is going to recap some of the most notable events in the last week, including the Park Mobile and Clubhouse data breaches, the wireless brain computers, updates on Google's new Flock technology, a custodian who was fired for not allowing herself to be tracked, and many more stories. I am Henry from TechLore. And I am Nathan from The New Oil. And today's report is brought to you by our wonderful supporters who continually give back and allow us to offer our content entirely for free. Our mission is to spread privacy to the masses, and the only way we can do that is by offering quality content entirely free to everybody. So if you want to help support our cause and mission, check out both TechLore and the new oil support methods below to not only help us, but oftentimes to receive cool perks as well. That's it. Enjoy SR38. All right. As usual, we are going to start off in data breaches. Our biggest data breach this week came from Park Mobile, which exposed the data of 21 million users. So Park Mobile is a popular app in North America where you can pay for parking directly from the app. The stolen data includes email addresses, dates of birth, phone numbers, license plate numbers, hashed passwords using bcrypt, and mailing addresses. So a lot of troubling information that could be used to steal addresses, stalk a person, any number of other things. Naturally, Park Mobile is insisting that while there was some unauthorized access, nothing sensitive was stolen. Uh, I believe the exact quote was no sensitive data or payment card information was affected. So that seems to be the default response for people nowadays. Another big data Facebook's a little bit too open sometimes with how much data they share with people, apparently. A big story this week is the Clubhouse data breach, which is not really a data breach per se. So 1.3 million Clubhouse users were affected, and that includes names, social media profile 1.3 million Clubhouse users were affected, and that includes names, social media profile names, quote, and other details. The article didn't really go into detail. This information could be used for phishing or identity theft schemes. That's usually what attackers are after when they do this kind of stuff. And according to Business Insider and according to Clubhouse themselves, they actually responded, this isn't really a data breach so much as it is just a scrape. All this information was already public, which is somehow supposed to make us feel better. Thanks, Clubhouse. So technically that qualifies as a scrape because this information was just publicly scraped. Our next story is from Albania. A leak of over 910,000 Albanians their personal data from politicians to general members of the public so this appears to have come from the voter rolls it included journalists quote well-known personalities and members of the public and civil society so again politicians celebrities everyday people it's a uh, troubling amount of data actually id number name father's name surname date of birth voting center place of birth residence code list number phone number immigration status and country birthplace employer patron and whether they are likely to vote for the socialist party That is a lot of information to have on a voter record, and it scares me a little bit. Our next story moves over to Australia, and the Swinburne University has confirmed that over 5,000 individuals were affected in a data breach. This is a pretty standard data breach, nothing too special here. Uh, Weird saying that, that there's so many data breaches. This isn't anything too special, though. The personal information included contained names, email addresses, and phone numbers of some of the staff, students, and external parties. And they sent an apology, and that's that for that story. Our next story is an update to something we covered, I think, a few weeks back. I think it was March. We talked about how the PHP devs had to deal with Git code that was under the name of the founder and lead dev, which was attempted to try to push malicious code onto them. Um, They now have sent an update saying they no longer believe that the server was compromised in this recent attack which was the reason why they moved to GitHub, and it caused them to put a whole 
plethora of new security protocols. So there is still a possibility that the master.php.net user's database was leaked, but that's it. So they reset the passwords to at least mitigate that problem in the future. And our last data leak this week, uh, this one's a little bit unconfirmed, but uh, a user on Reddit reported that he got an email from Ford's credit department for the auto manufacturer saying that some data may have been compromised and, you know, what steps to take. This story seems to be verified by another user who shared a link. Ford, back in December, said that certain sensitive customer information was stolen by an employee. So it just appears that they're just now getting a handle on exactly what was stolen, who was affected, and now they're notifying people. Man, that is a lot of data breaches this week. Let's move into companies, and we are going to start off with WhatsApp. Using just your phone number, this is a quote from the article, using just your phone number, a remote attacker can easily deactivate WhatsApp on your phone and then stop you from getting back in. Even two-factor will not stop this. So this is a, a not really a technically difficult process, but it is kind of a multi-step process, and it does require somebody to really target you. I guess that's kind of the good side. Hopefully you don't upset anybody. So step one is the attacker downloads WhatsApp and attempts to sign in with your phone number. You will be sent in a login code. The attacker keeps trying to sign in until they get rate limited. For 12 hours, they are rate limited. There's really nothing you can do to stop this. Step two, the attacker creates a new email address, contacts WhatsApp support, says they can't get into their account. They pretend to be you. Apparently, this is a completely automated process, at which point WhatsApp will basically deactivate your account on all your devices, including the device that you're on. So now you're locked out, too. Step three is basically that the attacker has to do this whole rate limiting, try to get in two more times. After the third rate limit, it just locks up completely and it never unlocks. So the plus side is this doesn't actually give them access to your account. They're not able to steal any of your conversations or anything. However, it does mean that you are locked out until you can manage to get a hold of a human being, which I can tell you from firsthand dealing with Facebook, I don't think that's likely to happen. Hopefully WhatsApp will roll out a fix to this so that when users have two-factor enabled, it'll just completely do away with this. Just a real quick note, the researcher who found this He said that the vulnerability points out another issue with WhatsApp. There is no way of opting out of being discovered on WhatsApp. Anyone can type in a phone number to locate an account and see if it exists. Our next story is a pretty quick one, but Chrome 90 comes out with HTTPS by default, as well as some new security fixes. So first, make sure you update. Uh, I recommend not using Chrome, but this is still important if you do use Chrome because it's a security fix. So make sure you're always up to date with your software. And second, just this is good because HTTPS, the S stands for security for the HTTP protocol. Um, So the more S we have on more websites, the better. So it's good to see us becoming a standard now and we're defaulting to HTTPS when we're browsing the internet. Our next story is kind of unfolding. So this is very much early on. But pretty much some people are urged to sue Facebook uh, because of the recent data leak. And so we have a lot of people stepping up and the civil rights group has made complaints against the Data Protection Commission in Europe. So if you're in the EU, you can be a part of this and you can be part of the the people who are suing Facebook for some kind of compensation or, or reward or just to, you know, screw Facebook to the curb. Whatever. All of the above. Whatever you think is best. I'm here for that one. Yeah. So if you're in the EU and you you were caught up in the last Facebook data breach, go check that out. And finally, Australia has come out with a finding that Google does, in fact, mislead users over data collection. This is pretty self-explanatory to most people who watch the surveillance report, but this is more of just an authority coming out and, and talking about this. So the court has actually ruled that when users create a new Google account while setting up their Android device, the tech giant misleads them into thinking personal data could be collected only if the location history setting was on, which is not the case because they can still collect your location information even though that toggle is turned off. And they consider that 
the misleading aspect of of Google stuff. And that's very surface level too. It'd be scary to see if it was actually released, how much invasive data Google collects and what they do with data that's not directly invasive, but they can make invasive data. We're gonna move into research now. So our first story, a wireless brain computer interface has been successfully tested on humans for the first time. So wireless, or excuse me, brain computer interfaces are not really new, they're called BCIs. They've been around for a while, but traditionally they require cables because understandably that's a lot of bandwidth. This is a new system called BrainGate, which is able to achieve comparable results without the cables. The current version that these researchers tested was able to run for 24 hours without needing any kind of re re uh, recharging or anything like that. Researchers will use the data from that experiment to develop the next iteration, which will presumably last longer. And we're just kind of mentioning this because, needless to say, this has implications for privacy. Right now, this is just really cool scientific research, but of course it opens a lot of privacy doors. So hopefully that will be addressed. Our next story, billions of smartphone owners will soon be authorizing payments using facial recognition. Basically, this company called Juniper Research is suggesting that we are about to see a boom in biometric authentication, particularly for mobile payments. Because users are already used to using face unlock to unlock their phones, so why not? And then of course, phones are becoming increasingly central to online transactions like Apple and Google Pay, buying things directly in the apps, which opens up other security risks like fake apps. Juniper goes on to point out that hardware-based biometric authentic authentication is more secure, which is what Face ID does. It's basically a camera that is built specifically for Face ID, and it's not just a camera that Face ID was added onto it after the fact. Unfortunately, most vendors will probably use software-based first because, you know, it's easier to add face or facial recognition to the camera, but in time, hardware-based specialized cameras will roll out. And, of course, this software will also probably rely on SDKs, which means third-party libraries, which will increase the risk for both privacy and security abuses. And one last research story, Morpheus is a CPU that basically turns your computer into a Rubik's Cube to defeat hackers. A lot of this went over my head, but I think this is really cool. The, uh, the subheader says it all. University of Michigan's Todd Austin explains how his team's processor defeated every attack in DARPA's hardware hacking challenge. So we mentioned DARPA a while back. They're uh, teaming up with IBM, I think it is, to create better encryption. I describe them as the mad scientists of the U.S. government, specifically the Department of Defense. It says uh, 580 cybersecurity researchers spent 13,000 hours trying to break into this new processor and failed. Hopefully they can find a way to scale this thing and make it publicly available because I'm excited about that. And I encourage you to go ahead and read this interview where he really digs in deep and explains how this works. Next, we will move into politics. There was a real big story this week that went a little bit viral overnight in the privacy community. The FBI essentially, with a court order, broke into exchange servers in order to fix them. This is kind of a polarizing story. So we've been talking for months about this exchange hack, the Microsoft exchange servers, and how it's just been going on and on. One popular technique that some of the hackers were using, in addition to getting into the exchange servers, was they left behind a persistent backdoor known as a web shell. The FBI obtained a court order, and that court order allowed them to enter into any known exchange server in the U.S. in order to remove any web shells. The article goes into detail about it. These web shells existed in a very specific, hard-to-find directory, so it was easy for the FBI to make sure they were deleting the right web shells and not screwing up anybody else's access. 
And also, on the other hand, it because it was so specific, it would have been hard for the owners of the servers to find this particular web shell. Again, FBI got the court order, they went in, and they went ahead and did it for everybody. The part that's kind of polarizing is that no, nobody was told about this. The only reason that we're finding out about this now is because the FBI is informing people after the fact, like, hey, we did this. And I understand that's good operational security to not let people know you're doing that, but it does definitely raise a lot of questions. The government and personal property and the greater good, and it's, you know, yeah, it was it was a very polarizing story. Our next story also involves the FBI, and this goes back to a story way back. Uh, I think this was a 2015, uh, the San Bernardino iPhone case, where the FBI wanted Apple to unlock the device used in a terrorist attack, and Apple refused. For those who don't remember, FBI was the FBI was trying to get a backdoor into iPhones, and Apple was refusing to do it. And what ended up happening was, you know, a week later, they ended up getting into the iPhone anyway. This was all a stunt to try to get a backdoor into the iPhone, even though they had the capability the entire time. They actually never knew who unlocked the iPhone. So it's now come out that it was an Australian company called Azimuth. They do that a lot. They did that again with the shooter in Pensacola. I think they did it with the shooter at Fort Hood, but I could be imagining that. Um, Basically, every time a shooter uses an iPhone, which the fact that we can say every time a shooter uses an iPhone is a whole nother issue, but... All the shootings will stop if we get a backdoor in the iPhone. Oh, yes, because the Parkland shooter was not reported directly to the FBI beforehand or anything. Yeah, and the the, the Boston Marathon shooter, or <laughs> the Boston Marathon bomber was also not on an NSA watch list, which totally prevented the attack. I didn't know that, but I'm not surprised. Yeah, that's <sighs> something uh, Snowden constantly talks about. That's like one of his most notable stories, because he still was at the NSA at the time. So I think he was at a bar with his friends who worked at the NSA, uh-huh. and they saw it happen on the news, and they go, how much do you want to bet this guy was on our watch list? God. And sure enough, they went and checked, and that guy was like a, a person of interest. Our next story, uh, this is kind of an update to a story we talked about a little while ago. Mexico is now requiring cell phone users to provide biometric data to the government. So originally we talked about this when it was a proposal. Now it has been approved by the Senate. It still needs a signature from the president to become law, but... I am assuming that's probably pretty likely at this point. So the goal of this proposal is to stop kidnappings and extortions, which are apparently quite a problem in Mexico. The database, quote, will contain 10 different points of data, the mobile phone line number, the date and time of activation of the mobile phone line purchased with the SIM card, the full name of the owner, or where appropriate, the name or business name of the user. So I guess get a phone and a business name is your best bet now. Nationality, official identification number with photograph, and unique population registry code of the line holder. In addition, it will contain the biometric data of the user or, where appropriate, of the legal representative of the business registering the cell phone, the user's address, the data of the telecommunications company or, where appropriate, the authorized ones, and the contact information for the mobile phone line, either postpaid or prepaid. So basically everything you could ever want to know will be directly tied to that phone. Users will be required to turn over fingerprints, iris, facial recognition data, voice recognition data, signature, and DNA. We're currently developing a private phone plan slash phone video. That was one major thing that like, we had to, s- to specify, hey, these laws change drastically between countries. Because here in the U.S., it's very straightforward to get more or less a burner phone. But like in Australia, it's required to be tied to an identity, and it sounds like Mexico's going down that path as well. Our next story has to do with contact tracing, which hasn't been talked about in surveillance support for probably a few months, so yay. For those who don't know, Apple and Google actually hold a lot of the control of how these contact tracing applications work, which is overall 
I, I know that that sounds like a bad thing, but it's overall not a terrible thing because Apple and Google don't do the contact tracing themselves. They just implement the technology into the operating system and they're kind of being held responsible for how each app is utilized. So here's an example of this actually working out well. So England and Wales updated their contact tracing app to now include location data, which traditionally isn't supposed to be used for contact tracing since it's just Bluetooth data. Apple and Google both have now blocked the England and Wales contact tracing app because they have a very firm rule against no location tracking. So this is overall a win, and it shows that at least some things in the contact tracing system seem to work, at least in this specific situation. Not to say that contact tracing is perfect and that there aren't other issues, I don't want that comment that Henry defended contact tracing. All right, our next story is from Maine here in the U.S. Legislators are leading the fight against police surveillance. This is an opinion piece by an assistant professor in the criminology department at University of Southern Maine. And he says on Monday, which I think is this coming Monday, if I remember correctly, Maine legislators will be holding a hearing on a bill to close the state's fusion center, the Maine Information Analysis Center, MIAC. This will be the first time legislators in any state have considered closing a fusion center. It would have major implications within and beyond Maine. For those who don't know, a fusion center is a horrifyingly beautiful piece of work. It's where local police and federal police and a whole bunch of other agencies basically get together and combine all of their surveillance capabilities in order to fight crime or fight you know, illegal border crossings or whatever, because I, I know we have one here in Texas. There's several of them all over the U.S., and they're, they're really scary, because like I said, it's all levels of the government and multiple departments combining their surveillance capabilities. They're very, very powerful things, so it's good to hear that Maine is kind of saying, like, hold on, do we really need this? On that note, another story says big tech is pushing states to pass privacy laws, and yes, you should be suspicious. I will let you guys read this article on your own, but basically big tech is, uh, DuckDuckGo calls it privacy washing. They're pushing for privacy laws, but a lot of them are weak. They're just for show. Kind of like we talked about Virginia's law that passed recently that I guess is better than nothing, but really wasn't great. All these big tech companies are getting behind just as a show, a public PR thing. Like, yes, we're totally in favor of regulation, but not serious regulation that actually affects us. Just to add to that, yes, that is a huge part of things. I think it's great publicity and it's great PR for each company. But also remember who's really writing the laws here because these companies have so much money that are being paid to the politicians. They're practically writing a lot of these laws as well. Yeah, definitely. Good point. I want to say that big tech is now like the biggest lobbier in the US. Like it's it's gone past pharmaceuticals and I think even oil. If they're not the top one, they're definitely in the top five. Like they spend yeah. billions every year on lobbying. And our final story is related to Microsoft, who has reported an increase in U.S. law enforcement data requests in 2020. That's pretty much the story, some context for people new to this. The government can tap on companies for data requests. So there could be an individual who they suspect is responsible for a crime. They have all the legal right to tap on Microsoft and say, hey, we have a reasonable, we we have a reason to think that this individual is doing something wrong and we need what data you have about them sent to us. So this is just saying that those requests are going up in 2020. And that's kind of the pattern. If you look at every single year, it seems to go up every year. If anybody doesn't listen to Michael Basel, Michael Basil's podcast, The Privacy, Security, and OSINT Show, this past week he talked about the uh, Capitol riots on January 6th, and he went through public affidavits and court records and talked about how the law enforcement found and arrested people who were part of that and that uh that kind of ties into law enforcement data requests from different companies like Facebook and Skype and it's uh I mean if you're curious about more of that it's a great episode I totally recommend it 
Now we're going to move over to the FOSS, free and open source section, and we're going to open up with Brave, the browser who has talked about, Brave always has good marketing, so they, they put out this really, you know, dramatic blog post, why Brave disables Flock. So I'd watch, I'd watch the last two surveillance reports if you want more context behind Flock, but essentially Flock is Google's new advertising technology to replace the cookie through a more invasive, centralized technology, which mostly benefits them. This is currently only in Chrome. Brave is based on Chromium. So again, Flock is not in Chromium. So I don't think Brave did anything in the browser itself. They just, there's just no Flock in their browser. Brave did disable Flock on their website because websites have to specifically opt out of using Flock technology for their customers as well. So Brave did do that, but this is just an FYI that Brave is now disabling Flock. It's also worth mentioning, there were some other stories coming out that Firefox will not be using Flock, Safari will not be using Flock, and pretty much every other Chromium-based browser like Brave, like which we just talked about, Vivaldi, and even Microsoft Edge will not be using Flock. There's kind of a big question of, is this even going to last if it's only in Chrome? Like, what's Google's goal here? If this is supposed to be a new technology used for everybody and a new standard and no one's implementing it, what's going to happen with Flock? But things aren't looking good for them right now which is a good thing. Our next story is about the EFF and DuckDuckGo. This is kind of an interesting story. Basically, EFF has a plugin called HTTPS Everywhere, which uh, if you're not using Firefox 83 or newer, and as of this week, Chrome 90 or newer, uh, I would say this is a good plugin to have. It automatically detects if a website is not using HTTPS, but it can, and then it will automatically upgrade you. And if you hit a little button, it'll actually warn you if it can't upgrade you. That's uh, super cool. However, HT, or EFF has teamed up with DuckDuckGo to make HTTPS everywhere better. So DuckDuckGo has this thing called Smarter Encryption, which continuously crawls the web and checks for websites to see if they have HTTPS connections and if they're capable of doing that. If so, it adds it to the database, so next time you go there, it will automatically upgrade you. HTTPS Everywhere was crowdsourced. So this is a huge improvement because it's automated, it's more real-time, it's a more comprehensive database. Kind of a fun side note, it's it's very exciting for me to see these browsers implement, because traditionally you had to get, you know, nine extensions in a Firefox browser to I get know. just basic privacy and security online. And it's, it's really nice to see, you know, Firefox is implementing adding tracking protection out of the box. HTTPS everywhere is now a staple if you're, if you're using the later versions. We're starting to see less and less use for these extensions, which means less fingerprinting, which means less security and privacy issues that the extensions themselves can bring up. So I, I'm really liking the direction that these browsers are headed. And a quick quick uh, update for any Proton Mail users. Proton Calendar Beta is now available for everyone. So it is no longer a paid-only feature. It is not yet available on iOS, but it is on Android and the website, of course. You can go to calendar.protonmail.com. Up next, really quick, uh, FreeBSD, which is <laughs> not Windows, not Mac OS, and not Linux. There is a fourth variant, for those of you who don't know, called BSD. Uh, FreeBSD has hit version 13. So good for them. If you're on BSD, that's probably something you want to know. Up next, the FSF, which is the Free Software Foundation. This is an update to last week where we talked about Richard Stallman and this controversial issue of him returning to the Free Software Foundation board. Pretty much the FSF has doubled down and they are keeping Richard Stallman no matter what. Despite all the criticism, like they're, they're stuck with that. So some people watching are going to rejoice and then throw their hands up and go yay. And some people are going to be like, that, that sucks. Um, that's, that's fine. You, 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 can, you can make your own decisions there. However, I think the one issue here 
that I think most people can agree. They kind of, if you read their public statement, Richard Stallman published an apology like two minutes before they published their blog, saying that he apologized. So it was very clear that they very much coordinated this, and the apology isn't really an apology. It's specifically quoted as a non-apology apology, like sorry, not sorry. So I do wish that we got a little more closure with some of the, the criticisms. That I think they're valid criticisms against some of the things that have been previously stated years ago. Now, whether or not that means anything for the FSF is up to you, but I do wish there was a little bit more of an apology and, and more of a a gentle approach to the situation because a lot of people are upset and I don't think it's overall a good look for the FSF, whether or not you agree with it. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. Um, I remember reading both their statement and his apology and... Uh, I'll admit, normally my uh, reading comprehension skills are not always there, and sometimes I have to see someone point out, like, that wasn't really an apology, and I'm like, oh yeah, you're kind of right, but even first read-through by myself, I was just like, this doesn't really feel like an apology, like, where's the apology, and yeah, it was, uh, I, I don't think it was well handled. And again, I don't think that, it, I don't think that means we stop recommending FSF, I think it just means, like, for people who were upset about this, they're only going to be more upset about that now. And now we have our misfits. So our first misfit starts with a school custodian who refused to download a phone app that monitors her location. And she says that's why she got fired. It's pretty much what it sounds like. This was in Canada and she pretty much claims that because she refused to download this app um, that would monitor her when she was inside a geofence, which is kind of an invisible boundary created by the employer. Um, this was actually done to tell when she and other custodians were on the job. So this is kind of a work workforce surveillance and she completely refused to use it. Um, she found it offensive, and yeah, she just didn't use it. And then they fired her less than two months later. She thinks it's because her refusal to download the app, and it sounds like everything everything I'm reading makes it sound like that as well. It doesn't sound like there was some hidden uh, ulterior motive. I know some people have had a few comments in the past saying, hey, when you're in the workplace, they can do whatever you want. If, if you don't like it, then go work someplace else. And I think that you should really consider that this is all digital spying. Right. I, I always use the analogy of how would you feel if your boss was just watching everything you're doing on your computer right behind your back for the whole eight hour shift. I feel like most people would have issues with that. And just because it's happening on a digital level doesn't make it OK. Well, and it's also so, um, they wanted her to download the app on her device, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's to not me, even that's, like they're giving her a work device. <laughs> yeah. Like to me, that's the big deal breaker. Like whether you you feel like, well, you know, it's work and you should expect no privacy at work. Like, OK, maybe. But. I also don't expect my boss to go through my text messages. Like, that's my phone. And, and there's a little note here. Other Canadians have been asked to download software that helps employers remotely monitor their productivity, like phone apps that register an employee's location via GPS, um, and even software that monitors the activity of their computer mouse. Others have tracking devices in their vehicles. So this goes well beyond just work surveillance. It starts as work surveillance, but this does go into personal life as well. We have another, this is just a really quick story, but there's a Counter-Strike, the, the video game for those who are familiar, there's a Counter-Strike bug that allows hackers to take over a PC with a Steam invite. So this was labeled as, as a critical bug by a security researcher, and this is from Valve's game engine that powers the popular game. Um, the company's been slow to fix it. Apparently it's been around for a good amount of time. Uh, and this actually, if you've never heard of them, Florian is the name of the researcher, and they've come out with some other things in the past as well. I'd really recommend, there's a YouTube video demoing how this works, and that will be included in the sources. So we'll keep following that story. Okay, and our final story is uh, about a backdoor developer tool that was stealing credentials for three months and no one noticed. This is a real, really straightforward story. I believe this is called CodeCov. It's a bash uploader that contained a backdoor. 
between January and April, and I guess they finally got that fixed. It caused computers to send authentication tokens and other sensitive data to remote sites controlled by hackers. The article goes into detail about exactly how it works. It's even got, like, samples of the script and everything. But, yeah, just uh, be, be alert, man. I guess that's the takeaway there. Scary world. And that was all of our news for SR38. It was kind of a short but dense week, right? We had a lot of big stories coming out, lots of FBI-related things, Park Mobile, the Clubhouse breach, and some other Facebook and Google-related issues. So it was definitely a busy but dense week, and we'll be able to update you on some of these stories next week as there will very likely be updates to many of these stories. Again, this report is brought to you by our supporters. So if you want to join us and help us spread privacy to the masses, check out the support methods that we have below. We, we accept Monero donations. We have merchandise. We have a Patreon. We have just generic PayPal donations. We have lots of ways you can support us as well as free ways to support us as well. You don't have to necessarily support us through paid methods either. And I know Nathan also has lots of support methods for the new oil as well. And those will also be below so we can get support for... for yeah, just lots of support. Help us out here. We also want to thank you for listening to the surveillance report. And we're just happy to know you're trying to stay safe out there. And the final thing we want to ask you is to share the podcast around. Make sure you're subscribed and give us a rating if you're listening from a platform where that's an option. Uh, we want privacy to reach as many people as possible, and you can help us to do that. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.